You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Fantastic. Right, we are doing a Sermon on the Mount. Um, If you've got a Bible, I'd love it if you could turn to chapter 5 again. We're going to be still looking at that one. Whilst you're doing that, I'd like to tell you about the pole vault. Yes, I don't know how many of you know, but uh, the UK record is 5.85 metres set by Harry Koppel on the 4th of September 2020. Well, this was the sport that I took part in when I was at secondary school. Yeah, you've never heard this before, I'm sure. I don't even know if my wife knows. Um, I was at secondary school, it was sports day, and, and they said, Pete, would you do the pole vault for our house? I said, yeah, of course I will. It's an afternoon off lessons. Why wouldn't I want to do the pole vault? I had never done the pole vault before in my life. So I turn up on sports day and I fail at the first height. But you allow three attempts, so I attempted three times and I failed all three times. It was one metre high. <laughs> my, my parents said to me afterwards, why didn't you just step over it? I said, because I was meant to be using the pole. The reality is that I think so often we approach the Sermon on the Mount like the pole vault and we feel like Jesus is just raising the bar and we think there's no way I'm going to get up that high. I don't think I could get over the lowest run. The correction is this is not about human effort. This is about divine power. You see, if you're a disciple of Jesus and this is written for disciples of Jesus, you give up power over your life, and you receive the power of the Holy Spirit inside you instead. Please don't get beaten up by this morning. And, so, and, and maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're watching. And you think, I'm not a Christian. Maybe you're here, and you're just exploring faith. This is not to beat you up. This is not, come on, let's get higher. This is a case of saying, actually, if you surrender your life to Jesus, if you're a disciple, We've looked at a disciple's character, we've looked at a disciple's influence, a disciple's righteousness, a disciple's heart. Today, I'm going to look at what I've called a disciple's lifestyle, the way in which a person lives. And for doing that, I'm going to be reading two sections from this, Matthew 5, 31 to 37. Divorce. It has been said... Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Oaths. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair black or white. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Wow, this is a challenging sermon. We said this is the Sermon on the Mount. There's five lots of teaching in the book of Matthew. 
This is a challenge, isn't it? Divorce. I looked on the BBC this week. The Office for National Statistics showed that 107,599 opposite-sex divorce couples in 2019, an increase of 18%. 18%. Man, if I got interest like that in the bank, I'd be thinking I'd, I'd be flying. So that's a, that's a huge number. That is the highest increase since 2014. There are actually 822 same-sex divorces, nearly twice the number of the year before. And now you can go on the internet and you can get a no-fault divorce from a solicitor for £37. Now, I'm very aware that numbers only tell half the story. I recognise this is a painful topic. This has impacted my family. I'm not just standing here trying to point fingers. I know that there'll be people in the room that maybe you're struggling with your marriage, maybe in the overflow, maybe on the YouTube. I know the church has been clumsy and condemning in the past. Don't the words of Jesus seem so out of touch? How do we approach the Bible? I sense that our society is heading in a very different way. Sexual freedom, sexual revolution. Let's make new rules. What about sex, masturbation, pornography, abortion? No, let's not have any rules. Willow Smith, the daughter of the Prince of Bel-Air, better known as Will Smith, came out recently and said, I'm polyamorous. I could have sex with more than one person. It would be great. So how do the words of Jesus fit into a society like this? It's gone very quiet in here today. I thought it might. What was it like back then? Well, the Greeks, and so, you know, this was all impacting the society there. The Greeks had a very loose approach to sex. If you've ever seen the film Mamma Mia, that wouldn't surprise you. If you've not watched it, it's been out for years, but she doesn't know who her dad is because obviously this woman slept with three men on a Greek island at the same time, basically. They used to say, the Greeks in this time, you have wives for children, you have women for fun. So that was very much their approach as Jesus was there. There was a temple that had 1,000 female prostitutes because that's how the Greeks approached sex. There was only one downside to sex and divorce for the Greeks. If you divorced a woman, you had to pay back the dowry. But apart from that, it felt like anything went. What about the Romans? What was it like to to be a Roman at this time? Well, we know that the Roman Empire was started on a strong family foundation. In fact, for the first 500 years of the Roman Commonwealth, there was not a single divorce recorded. But then the Romans invaded Greece and they conquered Greece. Or maybe the Greeks conquered the Romans. Because after that, their attitude changed. In fact, by the time of Jesus, the Romans had this saying, there are only two happy days with a woman. The first day she's in your arms and the last day when you put her in the tomb. What a tragic, cynical approach to women. 
At this time, I read one guy, uh, I think he was a poet, writing at the time of Jesus. He talks about one woman that had eight husbands in five years. There was another woman that had ten husbands at the time that Jesus is saying this. So I've, I've explained the Greek, I've explained the... What about the Jews? What was it like for the Jews? Well, we know, if you've been around for a little while, that um, in Genesis... I'm not expecting you to be that old, but we talked about it on the last series. In Genesis, it says in chapter 2, verse 24, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. So for the Jews, marriage started out sacred. This is something that God's instituted man and woman come together. In fact, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, there's still this very strong message about marriage. It says in Malachi 2.16, the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. In fact, traditional rabbis in the Old Testament used to say this, God is long-suffering to every sin except the sin of unchastity. And the very altar in the temple weeps when a man divorces his wife. However, things have begun to change. And so by the time of Jesus, they're quoting this passage from the Old Testament, which is Deuteronomy 24. It says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her away. We don't believe that Moses was trying to facilitate divorce. He was trying to limit it. He was protecting women. But as I've mentioned before on this, what has happened is the Pharisees then try and explain these rules. And and basically, there are two, we call them schools of Pharisees. One was Shammai. He was the conservative guy. And he said, basically, you could only get divorced. It was only a guy that could initiate divorce in those days. You could only get divorced if there was unfaithfulness. But there was another camp ran by a guy called Hillel, who was a liberal. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. It it says here about displeasing and indecent. And so you wouldn't be surprised. They wrote up a list of what's displeasing. If your wife put too much salt in your dinner, that was displeasing. And you could divorce her. If she burnt your meal, that would be displeasing. In fact, if you spotted another woman that was more attractive than your wife, this Pharisee said she was now displeasing and you had the right to divorce her. Now, let me just ask you the question. Where do you think the Jewish men went? Did they think, oh, you know what? We're going to follow the conservative guy or we are going to follow the liberal guy? I could ask for a show of hands. I don't want to get this too political. I'm sure many of us would say... Well, actually, it was this way. They thought, what's in it for me? How do I twist Scripture so that it suits me now? I feel like, oh, God, if I just learned that lesson, let's not throw stones at them. How much do I twist Scripture? How do I make it so that it's it's the most convenient for me? It, It says what I want to do. That was the challenge that Jesus was speaking into. In fact, they reckon the culture got so difficult that they were struggling to get girls to marry because they were so disempowered. 
just thought, I'm going to get divorced anyway. Even the Romans made a law at the time of Jesus saying that as a single man, you could not inherit your father's fortune unless you were married. They were trying to say, look, actually, this has become just such a pick and mix. The Pharisees don't just pick up here. Jesus answers the question again in Matthew 19. In fact, it takes a little bit longer of uh, Matthew. In Matthew 19, verse 3, some Pharisees come to him and test him. They ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? It's interesting how they've sort of extended it, isn't it? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female. He said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, some of you will be sat here today saying, oh, yeah, but Pete, that's the Matthew exception, isn't it? Yeah, because this is recorded in Mark and Luke and they don't include that. And some of you then say, well, I've read the Bible and I'm also aware that Paul does an exception. It's in 1 Corinthians 7. I want to throw back this. Yeah, but do we want to become modern Pharisees? Are we trying to work down the details of the law? John Stott, in his commentary, I think presents a very helpful analogy here. He says, the Pharisees were looking for grounds for divorce. Jesus was committed to the institution of marriage. The Pharisees regarded Moses as a command. Jesus sees Moses as a concession. The Pharisees regard divorce lightly. Jesus takes it seriously. Jesus is redefining, I guess, or defining marriage for us. Marriage is not affection. I'm not sure I believe this, but people tell me their dogs are affectionate. But we don't marry dogs. Marriage is not about sex. Rabbits have lots of sex, and we don't marry rabbits. Surely marriage, therefore, is about covenant. That's where Jesus is going. Tim Keller, listen, he did a couple of sermons on this very passage, found it very interesting. He says this, divorce is like an amputation. It's not the first thing you try, but it is a last resort, which can be life-saving. There's lots to think about just in that. I guess what I would want to bring today is that I believe the gospel is about forgiveness and reconciliation. I've got this photo of some kids. There's the challenge to stand out in the crowd. Somebody didn't realise you had to dress up as Batman on that day. I sometimes think that's us. I think we're the odd one. And we didn't realise that everybody else seems to be saying a different thing. Strand of thought. I would like to bring the challenge how do we live countercultural 
when it comes to these things. There is a paper, the elders here have done a paper on uh, divorce, and if you thought, oh, Pete, I want to talk more about it, you can ask me about that. I'm happy to talk details. I think it's a much more pastoral thing than to stand here and spout a load of rules. But I think all of us, we need to be countercultural in the way we approach sex. What about oaths? Oaths. An oath is a solemn promise, often involving a divine witness regarding one's future action or behavior. In Numbers 30, it's a book in the Old Testament, it says this, When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. Now, some of you are going to sit here and say, oaths, Pete, do we do oaths now? Maybe it was just me. Kids used to say, swear on my mum's life. Well, basically, that means, you know, oh, yeah, I'm really trying to tell the truth. You think, well, if you're trying to tell the truth, why have you got to put this on? That used to be the thing. I've sometimes found myself even going down the phrase, to tell the truth. And then I think, is the rest of the conversation not true? It's almost that kind of way, isn't it? We want to underline something. Again, you won't be surprised that in those days, the Pharisees had got experts at these kind of things. And uh, which way do you take it? You see, if you made an oath and you said it is by Jerusalem, you made this oath by Jerusalem, you were not bound to keep it. But if you said the oath toward Jerusalem... You were bound to keep it. I don't know how many of you have seen um, or heard of Nick Freeman, the loophole lawyer. I'm sure none of us could afford him, but Alex Ferguson, David Beckham, Frank Lampard, all great successful footballers have used him to get out of speeding tickets. This guy is a master at knowing technicalities of the law and getting people out. I don't think he's Jewish. But they were like that. In Matthew 23, again, they come back to Jesus, and we've got this whole passage, Woe to you, blind guides, Jesus says to them. If anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound. That was obviously their division. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say that if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Jesus is basically saying, look, come on, everything belongs to God. You are limited. Now, let's be honest, things have changed. I will get in trouble for this. Because people say you cannot change your hair. My wife goes to the hairdresser's grey and she comes back brown. Somebody can change it. Okay. That one's got me even more trouble. The challenge is we can't ultimately change the colour of our hair. We are limited on control. The early church takes this teaching to heart. 
James writes in his gospel, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you're condemned. You see, what Jesus is trying to say is, look, if you have a disciple, you will be known for the truth. Wow, that's, that's, that's huge, isn't it, for us? Known for the truth. Jesus himself said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Look, I don't want to get caught in a rabbit hole. I know that even now Quakers and the old Anabaptists, therefore, would not swear on the Bible. I don't believe that is what Jesus is talking about. I believe that when Jesus is confronted in Matthew 26, basically an oath is asked, will you declare it? And he does. I believe that Paul does the same in 2 Corinthians 1. In fact, I'd go as far to say that God does the same in Genesis 9. If you're interested in that, ask me more. But let's get back to this. What does it mean for you and me? You see, I think our worldview has changed in the UK. We're no longer about what is right or what is wrong. We're about honour and shame. So if you don't like a restaurant, what do you do? Say to the waiter, you've given me really poor service. No, we haven't got the guts to do that. What we do is we tweet about it or we put it on Facebook or Instagram because it's an honour-shame thing. We don't actually say to them, I don't think this is the right service. You've done me a disservice. We, we try and shame. And so we've walked away from the thing of truth. If you know the book of James, you know that actually he writes to them and says, I want you to tame the tongue. Well, I'm going to suggest this morning that with social media, you need to train the thumb. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because the danger is, so often we put stuff out there without even thinking about it. Our words are powerful. Look, I love my mum dearly. I know she watches often on a Tuesday. Thanks, mum. But the worst thing that they can ever teach a mother to a child is sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Because we know that words are powerful. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're to tell the truth. Okay, let's define what truth is. That means, do we exaggerate? Do I tell a story that makes me look slightly better or funnier than I really am? Do I give a false impression? Am I economic with the truth? I didn't tell a lie. I just didn't give them all the details. I think what Jesus is trying to say is, look, actually, if you guys follow me, don't get caught up on the technicality. Is that a lie or not? Are you truthful people? Do we bring words of encouragement that build others up? Michael Eaton says this, the principle is Jesus' standards are high, but God's power and God's grace is higher still. And as disciples, I don't want to, if you sort of walk out this thing and think, oh, God, I just feel really heavy. I think actually what you want to walk out this room is think, God, fill me with your spirit that I can live a radical life for you. If I'm going to be a disciple, I cannot do it on my own. I'm going to finish by this. I know the band will then be coming back. None of us will be completely sinless in this life. But by his grace, we can all sin less, much less. 
And I think through this, Jesus is saying, come on, if you're a radical disciple, I want you to know my power and to see your life change. Next week, we're going to be looking at an eye for an eye and love your enemies. We will finish chapter 5. And you think, whoa, this is radical stuff. Jesus, we pray that we won't just twist scripture so it suits us. We pray that we'll listen to your word and have the courage to live by it. Lord, we, we want to fit in with the crowd so often. We get tired of being different, of saying something, and everyone misunderstanding us, labeling us. Jesus, how do we hang on to your words and live your way? How do we keep telling the truth when it just seems so convenient to fudge it? Little quick lie. Hold back. In this whole series, we're not saying we're just Christians. We're not just trying to take a label with disciples. We're trying to make our lives so that we, we say we radically follow you. Holy Spirit, would you fill us and enable us to do this for the glory of Jesus. Amen.